Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And this is Lost in the Woods. Welcome. Yes. This is our 50th episode. Yeah, we actually have a couple exciting things. So today is our 50th episode. And on top of that, we have now officially hit 100,000 downloads. No way. Seriously, thank you guys. 10... 10,000 downloads. That's awesome. 100,000. Oh, 100,000? Oh, shit. 100,000. 100,000 downloads. Damn. Messed that one up. Um, But thank you guys so much. We love all of our listeners. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a huge milestone for us, and we're so, so very excited. Also, we hit another milestone, which was 50 Patreons. Well, we have over 50 now. Yeah. But we told ourselves that when we hit 50 Patreons, we were going to do a special thing for our Patreons, and we actually just got fun little buttons made for all of our Patreons. Oh, yes. They say lost in the woods. They're square. They're super cute. We're so excited to send them out, so be ready for that. And we decided that anybody who signs up uh, by the end of April will get a free button. Yes. So we're going to be sending those out. This week, we're super excited about it, and we are so, so very grateful for all of our Patreons and for everybody who has supported us and all of our listeners. Yeah, you're the ones that make this happen, really, because if we didn't have our listeners... We would have nothing. We would have have me and Maddie in a cold bunker recording stories to ourselves. Yeah, literally I mean, <laughs> my, my ass off, not wearing any pants, because I think that's a good idea every time we come out here. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So thank you guys. We just wanted to throw that out at the beginning. We'll talk more at the end about our new Patreons and some other things that we have going on. But thank you. Thank you. We so, so appreciate you. Okay. So today we are bringing you the story of the Wells Gray Park Murders. On September 13 of 1982, a grisly scene was discovered in Wells Gray Park, located in east-central British Columbia, Canada. A mushroom picker, which I guess is a thing, yes, found a burned-out car similar to one owned by a family that had recently been reported missing. When the Royal Canadian Mounted Police searched the vehicle, they found the bodies of four adults and two children. Jesus. Okay, so the six bodies found in the vehicle were Bob Johnson, who's 44, and Jackie Johnson, who's 41, and their daughters Janet, who's 13, Karen, who's 11, and Jackie's parents, who is George Bentley, who's 66, and Edith Bentley, who's 59. Ugh, so rough. The family had set out on a two-week camping trip to Wells Gray Park on August 2nd of 1982. The family was last heard from on August 6th. So, Wells Gray Provincial Park is a wilderness park located near the Clearwater Thompson and Myrtle Rivers. It is approximately 300 miles northeast of Vancouver. The park covers 1.3 million acres and is British Columbia's fourth largest park. The park has 41 named waterfalls and is known for its stunning views and abundant wildlife. Those who visit the park can easily get away from crowds and explore the backcountry. 
The campsites in this park at the time would have been a lot more remote than what you're probably imagining. A provincial park, or what we would call probably a state park here, tend to have campsites that are a little closer together, but back in these days, these campsites would have been very spread apart. Okay, so George and Edith Bentley were the parents, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So George and Edith Bentley were longtime residents of Coquitlam, B.C. They retired three years before the trip in August of 1982. They loved to travel and spent a lot of their retirement traveling British Columbia. They also loved the outdoors and frequently went camping. Just before the trip and after over 50 years of packing around camping gear, they purchased a 1981 Ford Camper Special. Which was, I mean, that's a big deal. That's like a one-year-old camper. So that's a big investment for them. Mm -hmm. When they purchased the camper, they rented out their home and divided their time between camping and staying with their children. For the camping trip, they secured a 10-foot aluminum boat to the top of the camper to use if the opportunity presented itself. Right, because they're headed out to Wells Gray and think they're just hoping that somewhere in Wells Gray they'll have the opportunity to use a boat, which is pretty likely, I think. It looks likely to me. I don't know. Bob and Jackie had been married for 21 years by 1982. They loved to go camping as well, especially with Jackie's parents, who are George and Edith, right? Yes. They had two daughters, which would be Janet and Karen, who loved spending time outdoors with their parents and grandparents. Bob was a sawyer for Gorman Mills in West Bank. He had worked there for more than 20 years, and he had never missed a day of work. He was known for being a practical joker, and his co-workers enjoyed working with him. Bob liked to have fun and could often be found riding his motorcycle or riding a snowmobile. When he was not outdoors, he enjoyed drinking a beer and watching hockey. Jackie was close with her family and loved photography. She could always be counted on to have a camera ready to capture the family adventures. Before they left for the camping trip, Jackie stocked up on film so she could take plenty of pictures on the trip. Marty making me sad. It's already I know I don't know even what I don't even know what happens in this one, but the fact that it's like she stocked up film. I know these people didn't deserve whatever happened to them. That is a fact. And there are children involved again. Janet and Karen were active members of Girl Guides. Which would be kind of like Girl Scouts in America. Okay, so just like, you know, the Canadian version of Girl Scouts. Yeah. Girl guides. I like it. The girls also both took piano lessons. So little is known of exactly what the family did after they set out on their trip. Okay, so Saren Sarchett, another daughter of Edith and George, reported that her mother called her on August 6th and told her that they were having a great time and they planned to meet Bob and Jackie and the girls at Wells Gray Provincial Park to camp. That was the last conversation anyone outside the group had with Edith. What is known is that the family arrived in the park and chose a campsite near the Old Bear Creek. Prison? Mm Mm-hmm. Prison site. Yep. Weird that there's a prison near this park. Old Bear Creek prison site? Yep. On August 16, 1982, obviously, Bob was supposed to return to work, and when he did not, his co-workers became concerned. Because remember, he has not missed a day of work. Ever. Right. So Al Bonner, one of Bob's co-workers, contacted 
the Kilwana Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I love that it's royal. I know. Detachment to report Bob missing. He stated that the family was scheduled to return from camping on the 16th, and nobody had heard from them. The report was sent to Sergeant Baruda of Clearwater, who made some inquiries but could not find any sign of the missing group, so he promptly recorded them as missing. Mm, So very quickly, everybody's like, something is wrong. We cannot get a hold or find this family. Something had to have happened. Thank God they went that route. I know. Instead of the route of, oh, they're adults. They're probably just having fun camping, right? Initially, it was thought that maybe the family had some sort of car trouble and didn't have reception wherever they were. Yeah. Okay. Um, So while law enforcement started searching for clues, Brian Bentley, so George and Edith's son, and his wife Linda started asking around for information and showing photos of the family to everybody they met. So a service station attendant 40 miles east of Clearwater recalled seeing George and Jackie and the two girls refueling the car. So the group asked for recommendations on places to pick berries. With this information, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police launched a search in Wells Gray Park looking for the missing family. Searches included the Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers, private citizens, and local pilots. Cool. Yeah. Local pilots are just hopping on this. I love that. They used all-terrain vehicles, 4 by 4 vehicles, and aircrafts to search the train. Unfortunately, no sign of the missing family was found. And on September 13, a local mushroom picker named Kurt Jacques reported that— French? A little bit of French in there? Yeah. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but we're going with that. French <laughs> listeners or our Canadian listeners, let us know if that makes sense. We're very sorry. I don't know why. It just looked French to me. Okay, it's probably not at all. Jacques? I don't know. Jacques? Okay. I don't know how else to pronounce that. I don't know. He reported that he found a vehicle that was like the one that had been owned by Bob and Jackie. He stated that he thought it had been near Battle Mountain Road and reported that the vehicle he saw was a burned-out Chrysler. Sergeant Frank Baruda and Constable Mike Gloss drove up Battle Mountain Road in search of the vehicle. When they got to the possible location of the vehicle, they found tire tracks that headed into the bushes. The two men got out of their vehicle and walked into the bushes following the tracks until they found the vehicle. When they saw the license plate, they knew immediately that it was the car they were looking for. So the car was surrounded by approximately 20 feet of burned out grass. The door handles were gone. The roof of the car appeared to be caved in. The dash was melted and the tires were burned away. In what used to be the back seat of the car was an unknown amount of human remains. Mm-hmm. The bones were later determined to be the four adults. Yeah, and when investigators pried open the trunk of the car, they found what turned out to be the remains of the two girls. Very little was left of any of the bodies. Sergeant Eastham could only make out some skull fragments because the fire that had burned the car was so hot. Forensic investigation of the bones found that all six had been shot with a 22 caliber gun. At least they were already dead when the car was lit on fire. Literally, like, the only comfort that we can have in this situation, I think. So, investigators and crime scene technicians quickly mobilized to start searching around the car to try to find any evidence that would help them discover how the car and its occupants ended up 
where it was found. Everyone started looking high and low for clues. Sergeant Baruta coordinated with pilots to start an aerial search to look for campsites and missing truck and camper. Yeah, because they have that camper, there's a boat. Yeah, and if the boat's still on the camper, it would be very recognizable. So search teams also included tracking dogs, helicopters, fixed wing aircrafts, and civilian searchers. Unfortunately, neither the campsite nor the camper was located. The discovery of the car became big news and was all over news media. Within hours of the discovery, news reports were after investigators looking for more information. News reports helped to spur possible witness reports of the family's movements before they disappeared. Investigators considered every option they could think of to try and determine if witness reports were legitimate or not. The first question investigators wanted answered was, where had the family been camping? Because remember, they couldn't find their campsite. Brian and Linda had already told them that the Bentleys preferred isolated camping spots to avoid high-traffic tourist areas. So we also know now that this family would prefer to be off the beaten path, which might explain why their campsite hasn't been found. Yeah, but there's a whole camper missing. And a truck. I know. Yeah, camper and truck. To try to learn more about the movements of the Bentleys and find the truck and camper, RCMP investigators made a color copy of the truck and camper and put together pictures of the two families. Armed with photos, they started knocking on doors asking if anyone had seen the vehicle or the family. Their first big break in the case was a report from a park employee who recalled seeing a truck and camper parked at the old Bear Creek prison site. The employee was unsure if it was the exact truck, but thought it looked similar. The site was located 20 kilometers, which would be about 12, just over 12 and a half miles from where the car was found, and investigators knew right away it was what they were looking for. So they quickly found six spent 22 caliber ammunition shells. They also found some beer caps from a brand that was known to be drunk by Bob Johnson Mm -hmm. and full bottles of beer cooling in the nearby stream. So they also found two sharpened sticks thought to have been used for roasting marshmallows. Yeah, I hate this so much. Investigators, however, did not find the Bentley's 1981 Ford truck and camper or any of the camping gear. Yeah, so super strange, right? So they find the campsite, and they know it's the campsite because they find full bottles of beer in the creek, they find beer caps, they find roasting sticks. They're pretty sure that this is where the family was camping. And also, remember, the ranger thought he saw that truck Mm -hmm. at this campsite. So this seems to be a legitimate tip that this might actually be where their campsite was. two roasting sticks. For the two kids. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Mm. That's exactly what we do. We find sticks and we sharpen them. Around the time that the tip came in about the campsite, another tip came in about the missing truck and camper. A caller insisted that he had followed the truck and camper with a boat still on top around the 24th of August. The caller stated that he saw two scruffy-looking men exit the camper. They were described as being in their late 20s with unkept, shoulder-length hair. One was said to be blonde, and the other had dark hair. And neither spoke much English. What were they speaking? French. 
French. And they know that they were speaking French because a waitress at a restaurant had heard them speaking French. So Constable Gary Dalen recalls another witness who remembers seeing a couple of scruffy French-speaking men with similar descriptions. It was not long before more sightings of these two French scruffy men were being reported. Each sighting was the same. Two scruffy-looking men in their mid-20s with a truck and camper that looked like the Bentleys. Each sighting was pinned on the map, and investigators soon realized they were following the Trans-Canadian Highway. Unfortunately, the tips tapered off, and investigators lost sight of where the truck and the two men may have gone. By this time, there was a $7,500 reward raised for information about the truck and a $35,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer. Here's another one where the tip for the vehicle is separate from the tip for the arrest, which, again, is genius. Over 10,000 posters had been printed and distributed over North America, and almost 300 people had provided tips regarding the truck and camper. After months of no new information, several investigators came up with the idea of reenacting the murder scene as they believed everything had happened. Right. They planned to find vehicles that matched that of the Johnsons and the Bentleys. So the truck and the vehicle. Right. After reenacting the scene of the crime, they planned to drive the truck and camper across Canada in the same route as the scruffy Frenchman in hopes that someone might remember something. Much to the amazement of those involved in the investigation, the RCMP deputy commissioner approved the plan. Yep, so they're doing their reenactment. And we've actually seen this in other cases, not to this level. This extent, yeah. But we've seen this where somebody goes missing, so they have somebody who wears the same thing on the same day at the same time, and they follow the route to try to trigger people's memories. Mm -hmm. So we've seen this before. It's not super uncommon, although this is a very extreme version of it. Road trip in Canada, I guess. For the reenactment, vehicles were found that matched the Chrysler in the truck. Actors were flown in to play the part of the family members. The reenactment was filmed and would be aired on local news stations. Before the truck and camper headed out on the path of the suspects, hundreds of copies of composites of the French-speaking men were printed up and would be used and delivered at each stop planned along the route. Good idea. Yeah. On May 9th, 1983, the truck and camper started their trip across Canada. The reenactment trip sparked a flood of new calls with reports of people who thought they saw the original truck and camper. As tips came in, the local departments were following up and investigating them. In August, police got the tip that they were looking for. An auto mechanic in Windsor, Ontario, recalled seeing two men that looked similar. They had asked to have the truck repainted and wanted to pay in cash. When the mechanic saw the truck, he said it did not have the camper and that he noticed the same modifications on the truck as what George had done to his truck. Investigators were skeptical, but the witness had details that were never released to the public. The witness also stated that the men had a couple of guns that they were trying to get rid of. The witness said he told them that he did not want any part of it and recommended that they cross the border into the U.S. and see if someone there could help them out. <laughs> 
Awesome. Super cool. Very illegally. You cannot bring weapons across the border. Nope. We actually know somebody who was not allowed to cross the border for a really long time because they accidentally had a gun in their stroller when they were crossing the border. <laughs> they even were like, hey, I need to like, I, I have a weapon. I, I'm sorry. It was an accident. And then they got banned from Canada for like years. Oh, and spent like $10,000 on lawyers too. Do not take a gun into Canada. And for the record, no, it was not me. It wasn't. It kind of sounds like something that would happen to my mother, but it was not her. While investigators were following the trail of the two French-speaking men, on October 18th, Sergeant Easton received a call that two forest rangers near Bear Creek on an old logging road had found the Bentley's truck. Yep. At first, no one could believe that it was true, but soon it was confirmed that the vehicle found was the missing truck. And you guys, the truck was found only 15 miles from where the family had been murdered and 20 miles from where the car had been located. It had also been burned using an accelerant. The truck was well hidden, and it appeared that somebody had tried to drive the truck into the gorge, but logs had blocked the path. Investigators felt that the location of the truck meant that whoever was responsible for the death of the families must have been a local. So in case you didn't catch that, the two scruffy Frenchmen that were chasing across the country, completely unrelated. Yep, the scruffy Frenchmen. They do not have the family's truck. They probably had nothing to do with the murder. They just happened to be two men driving through Canada with a similar truck and trailer. With a boat on it? Are you serious? Maybe it didn't have a boat on it. Maybe someone just like made that that boat on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that can happen because imagine you see a couple days later on the news that there was a truck and a trailer and you're like, wait, I saw a truck and trailer. And then it's like, was there a boat on there? Maybe there was a boat on there. I think there was a boat on there. I think that's them. And then... Either way, so much time was spent investigating this lead in the wrong direction that cops didn't really focus initially on local possibilities or suspects. Well, because the Frenchmen were looked so perfect. I know. Hindsight, right? I do feel like, though, these Frenchmen had to be real for there to be so many tips specifically about them. Yeah, they probably were real, honestly. It was probably just two men, unrelated. So police were able to lift the truck out of the area using a helicopter, and it was sent to a crime lab in Vancouver. The truck was examined for clues, but nothing was found. I mean, it was burnt. Mm Mm-hmm. Investigators then turned to questioning possible suspects in nearby Clearwater by going door-to-door throughout the communities questioning everyone. They also received over 13,000 tips that had come in since the family had been found. Yeah, and one day a tip came in on a local man named David Shearing that suggested he might be the man that police were looking for. According to the informant, David had run over a person in the park a few years earlier and had never been prosecuted. Later that day, an investigator came in with a slip of paper that simply said David Shearing. The man who turned it in said a waitress at a restaurant had handed it to him. So we're starting to get tips about this David Shearing now. So I mean, if he's your local crazy, ran over someone in the park, what? Okay, so David was 23 years old. Oh my goodness. I'm always kind of mind blown when it's someone that's like so young and I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh God, this person's in my age group. Like this is my... Mm -hmm. Disturbing. Yes. So David was 23 years old and had lived just three miles from where the murders took place. Real close. 
He was not unknown to police. So great guy. Mm -hmm. Great guy. He had frequently been arrested for assault, drinking and driving, and drug possession. Right. So all pretty minor offenses at this point. And David did come from a well-known and respectable family who had an extensive background in law enforcement. His father, deceased by this time, had been a prison guard at the local prison, and his brother was a sheriff. Although David had a long history of run-ins with the law, he did graduate from high school and had completed a heavy mechanics course. David and his family had been interviewed early in the investigation, but had not sparked any interest. He was thought to just be a Clearwater cowboy who liked to drink and get into fights. There was always one in the family. The next day, another tip came in while interviews were being conducted door-to-door. A woman remembered David Shearing asking how to re-register a truck and how to fix a bullet hole in a door. Mm-hmm. The tip was enough to launch David to the top of the suspect list. Well, what I find crazy is that the second they started focusing on local, all of a sudden they have a great suspect and multiple tips. And this is 83, so this is a year later. Yeah. On November 19, 1983, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police found David in Tumblr Ridge, just north of Kamloops. He was there to appear in court on a charge of stolen property, and this was for stealing tools or something like that. Dude, you would be surprised how much people's tools get stolen. So several investigators, including Sergeant Mike Eastham, and Constable Ken Liebel were immediately convinced of David's guilt, even though there was no evidence linking him to the crime. We just have these tips, right? Mm-hmm. Eastem and Liebel worked hard to try and gain his confidence and were able to eventually get him to confess to his crimes. It was almost as if he wanted to talk about them. When David was initially brought in for questioning, he thought it was related to the hit-and-run accident from the year before. (laughs) The fact that you're brought in for questioning and you're not really sure what it's related to is kind of concerning. Which he immediately confessed to. After talking to him about the hit-and-run and some other crimes, investigators started interrogating him about the murder. During this interrogation, he accidentally admitted that he had heard the murders were committed at Bear Creek, which was a detail that investigators had not released to the public. Sergeant Eastham eventually got David to confess. Okay, so the fact that this detail was not released to the press, I don't think it's crazy that David would know this. He lived, what, within two miles of this crime scene. Oh, yeah. So he could have heard people talking about it, or he could have seen police converging on this area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When David confessed, he initially told investigators that he had shot the adults as they sat around their campfire and then shot the girls while they were sleeping in their tent. He said that his only goal had been to rob the family. Next, he loaded the bodies into the car, drove into the mountainside, and set the car afire using gasoline. He then cleaned the campsite, took the truck and camper back to his property, only deciding to burn it when he discovered it would be too difficult to re-register. That sucks, David. You couldn't re-register your stolen truck? That you didn't just steal, you fucking murdered a family for? So David also looted the campsite and the camper of anything that he thought might be of value. Many of the items he stole were recovered by investigators at his parents' ranch where he lived, so he did commit these crimes. 
Following his confession, investigators took him to the three primary locations of his crime, where he reenacted what he did. On November 21st, David was charged with six counts of second-degree murder. Yeah, and the detective, the main one, what's his name? Eastham? He wasn't really buying this entire story and told David that after his trial, he would be back to get the real story. David Shearing went to trial on January 19 of 1984. He initially waived his right to a preliminary hearing, and the full trial began on April 16 of 1984. The day before the trial was set to begin, he pled guilty to all six counts of second-degree murder. David prepared a written statement where he said, I walked out of the bush from behind the camper and started shooting. I went to the tent, I knelt down, and I shot the other two. I put the bodies in the trunk, four in the back seat, and the two little ones in the trunk. I poured gasoline, and it went woof. I stood back and watched it burn. During sentencing, Supreme Court Justice Harry McKay said, What we have, very simply, is a cold-blooded and senseless execution of six defenseless and innocent victims— for no apparent reason. The sentence I impose in conjunction with such matters as protection of the public and specific deterrence must have proper regard for public opinion and must express in clear terms the revolution felt by the great majority of our citizens for this senseless and vicious mass killing. This case is at the upper range of culpability. The victims were unknown to the prisoner, They did not in any way provoke him. He knew they were camped at the site and carefully scouted the situation. He went home and returned either that night or the next day with a loaded 22 rifle. Why? We do not know. But it seems it was to rob and kill. There were no ameliorating or mitigating factors. The enormity of the crimes demand the maximum sentence. David was sentenced on April 17th, 1984 by Justice McKay to six concurrent terms. Yeah, and if you guys don't remember what concurrent means, it means he can serve them all at the same time. So he served six concurrent terms of life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. His sentence was the maximum possible for second-degree murder. And the first time in Canadian history that somebody had received such a stringent sentence. That's because everyone in Canada is so nice. David made no attempt to appeal this sentence. Right. So, and why would he? I mean, he killed six people. He's not going to have any kind of grounds for an appeal on this sentence. But this also means that after killing four innocent adults and two innocent children, he will be eligible for parole when he is 48 years old. Well, 49 by the time he is sentenced. What the fuck? So at the age of 49, this man can be walking around the streets again. Safe. I really, really struggle with this. Here's the thing. If he wanted to rob these people, he didn't have to kill them. He didn't have to kill the children. But here's the thing. He receives the same sentence for killing all six of them that he would have for killing four of them. So why wouldn't he kill the children? Yeah. Like, the fact that these sentences can be served at the same time really, really bothers me. But that's another issue. Most of the justice system really bothers me. A lot of our cases really, really bother me. These people that commit horrendous crimes and then can get out. 
Yeah. And we're going to talk more about this at the end, too, because... Good. I think that we should start doing public hangings again. <laughs> I think that that would get rid of a lot of crime. Uh, off with their head. Okay, go. Ah, you kill someone? Hung. For those who knew David, particularly his family, they were shocked that he could commit such a crime. His mom stated that he had always been a good boy. Sorry, there's something about that that I really don't like. I would never describe my children as being, like, good girls. I don't know. (laughs) Makes you want to throw up a little bit. Yeah. His brother had a lot of questions, and although David often had his run-ins with the law, David's brother had a hard time believing that David could have carried out such a heinous crime. Following David's convictions, Sergeant Eastham returned to David to get the real story. Because remember, he wasn't buying the whole I went to rob them story. And now that David has been sentenced, he has no reason to... Yeah, because you can't get tried twice for a crime. So he shows up and David finally gives him the real story. According to David, he had become enamored by the two young girls, especially Janet. How how old are they? Janet is 13 and Karen is 11. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You had, what? What? How, How old are you? He's like 23 or something. Yeah. What the fuck? Okay. Another trigger warning, this might be a good time to step away or hit the fast forward button. So David decided that he was going to have them even if it meant killing their parents and grandparents. David stated that he saw the family set up camp and spent several days spying on them, including laying on his stomach and crawling around the campsite at night. On the evening of August 10, He walked into the campsite with his rifle, shot Bob and Jackie, and then George and Edith. The girls were already in their tent getting ready for bed. David said that he walked over to the tent, looked in, and told the girls that there was a dangerous biker gang nearby and their parents had run for help and that he was there to take care of them. (sighs) Okay. While the two girls hid out in their tent, he loaded the bodies of their grandparents and their parents into the back seat of the car and covered them with a blanket. He then went back to the tent and crawled in with the girls. Later, he had them help him pack up the campsite. They got into the car. He said that he put the two girls in the front seat with him and they left the park. And remember, their parents and their grandparents are dead in the back seat. I literally can't. David disclosed to Eastham that he kept the girls alive for nearly a week, keeping them at his ranch in a small fishing cabin where he repeatedly abused them. David said there was one day he was almost caught by a prison guard who was supervising prisoners that were fishing nearby. The prison guard went to the cabin to warn David that the prisoners were nearby, but not to worry because they were just there to fish and that they were being supervised. Why are prisoners fishing? Not the point, but, you know. I don't know about Canadian prisons, but I know in, like, I watched this I watched this one documentary on Netflix. Not important what it is. But in Norway, they actually have prisoners that if you have, like, good behavior, you work on, like, fishing boats. And you, like, fish and I stuff. Like, I think it's Norway. I feel like a fishing boat is different than, like, just fishing along the river with one prison guard watching you. Well, it's Canada. I know. Okay. So... David managed to get the girls hidden before the guard could see them, 
and the guard never noticed that anything was amiss while he was there. But this encounter scared him, and he said that he had already killed four and he didn't want to get caught. The next day, David moved the girls to his family farm. On August 16, he took Karen into the woods and killed her. And then on August 17, he killed Janet. He said that each time he told the girls to turn around so that he could urinate and then shot each of them in the back of the head. He then took the bodies to the family car where he put them in the trunk. It was then that he took the car to the secluded spot and burned it. I, this man, I can't, I can't. And then you guys wanting to confirm this, Easton went looking and found the prison guard who had been guarding the prisoners out fishing. The guard remembered the event happening exactly as David had described. Easton and fellow constable Liebel then hiked through the bush to the cabin where they searched it and they found a set of initials JJ carved into the wood on the wall in the cabin, which they think stood for Janet Johnson. I can't. I can't. I don't have any. I don't have anything to say. I don't have that was really, really tough to hear. I cannot handle it, especially having children this age. Cordelia is 11. She is the age of one of these little girls. I know. Ugh. So Eastham, as you can imagine was beyond, I mean, I don't even know. But he vowed that as long as he was alive, he would make sure that David was never released from prison because he believed that David could and would kill again. Obviously, if he kills six people his first time... Killing people? Yeah. That's a big jump right there. It's not like you killed someone in self-defense, David. In 1999, Sergeant Eastham published a book about the murders. He was worried that the case would fade from memory and that people would forget, making it more likely that David would be released. The book explains the case in detail and discusses Eastham's frustration with the justice system, which he actually had to read. He actually retired in order to write this book because he couldn't write this book while working for the department. Hmm. Eastham stated, I was in the RCMP for 35 years, and for 35 years, I had to keep my mouth shut. He also stated this is one of the worst crimes in Canadian history. To me, Shearing's no different than Clifford Olson or Charles Manson. And Clifford Olson was a serial killer who murdered 11 children and young adults in the early 80s. Hmm. And I think most people probably know who Charles Manson is. Yeah, He's, he's from our neck of the woods. What I want to know is why Shearing was not or David Sharing was not charged for the molestation of the girls. Um, because those charges should be able to be added on after the fact. You can't be tried for a case twice. Yeah, but he's not being tried for the murders. He's being, it would be adding, Easton's book is called The Seventh Shadow. I really wanted to read it, but apparently the cheapest copy I could find was like $40 used. Hmm. I don't know why every book I want to read for one of our cases is so expensive. If anyone has a copy laying around, you want to I'll make you a bookmark. Yeah, Maddie will make you a bookmark. I'll make you a Lost in the Woods bookmark, and it will be good. (laughs) Paint some trees on there for you. I'll do some Bob Ross. Maddie's really good at painting. I could do it. So if somebody can find me a used copy of this book, Maddie will send you a sticker and a bookmark that she has painted herself. Bob Ross trees. 
<laughs> oh, Bob Ross it. <laughs> In 2008, David was up for parole for the first time. He was 49 years old and had started going by his mother's maiden name, Enos. So he changed his name to David Enos. And I think this was to distance himself from this crime because it was so well known. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Also, why are you allowed to change your name in prison? He appeared before the parole board at Alberta's Bowdoin Institution. Which is a medium minimum security jail. Which is where he's serving his life sentence. Minimum? Medium? Really? No maximum for this guy? Just asking. Residents of his local community and the communities of the victims put together a petition requesting his parole be denied. The first petition got 10,000 signatures in just two months. Uh, Kelly Nielsen, who is cousins to the two girls remembers that when Bob Johnson's boss called the family asking about Bob's failure to show up for work, it was a start of a never-ending nightmare. She told the parole board that it took almost a month before Kelly's mom called to say that the car had been found and that everyone was dead. The memorial service for the family was held just before Kelly's 18th birthday, and all six victims fit inside a single baby-sized casket. This is what she's telling the parole board about these crimes and their families. Other family members told the parole board that growing up, their parents were afraid to let them out of their sight. It was reported that Shearing listened to the statements of the victim's family members and dabbed his eyes with a tissue. Fuck you, David. I want to see the tears, David. Yeah, show us the tears. Get that tissue out of there. I want to see the tears rolling on your face. All right, David told the parole board that he started having violent sexual fantasies when he was 15 years old. He stated that he would become so preoccupied by them that he would go through his day on autopilot not knowing what he was doing. That's concerning. Red flag. Well, and that just goes to tell you that what if David had gotten help when he was 15? What if he had told somebody? What if... Talk to your kids. Talk to your kids, you guys. He said he had those thoughts and feelings because he did not fit in and he thought it was normal to feel that way. He talked about his time in prison where he was treated like a celebrity. Cool. He said that other inmates looked up to him because he killed six people. What they didn't know is that he had molested the girls. David said that he was afraid of inmates finding out because they would have killed him for what he did to the girls. Yes. David said he did not start talking about the girls until he started treatment in 1995. He also married a woman from Prince Alberta that same year. Really? They can get married in prison? Yeah, you can get married in prison. Uh, That should not be allowed. I'm sorry. They met in 1993 while he was in prison. They also get family time in prison. Yep. Which is conjugal visits, by the way. His wife, Heather Enos now, she says that he has changed and knows that he should be given another chance to be free. You know what, Heather? Fuck you too. Sorry, Heather, but the fact that you are okay with what he did, I don't know. You're okay that your husband decided that he needed to kill four people so that he could molest an 11 and a 13-year-old girl. Right. And I'm, I think that people can change. I don't think that all people can change. I'm going to go ahead and put David on that list. I'm going to say that I'm going to put all pedophiles on that list. David said that he could count on the support of his wife and that he should be allowed day parole to attend therapy sessions and eventually job interviews. During, huh. the, 
During the hearing, David pulled out a crumpled piece of paper and read his first public apology in 25 years. He said, My crime was enormous, brutal, and an inexcusable tragedy, resulting in tremendous loss to the community that I can never make up for. It makes me hate to be in my own skin. It should. Although shocked at this apology, the National Parole Board ruled that he still had violent sexual fantasies and had not completed his sex offender treatment. They determined that he was still a risk and denied his request for parole. You guys want to know why he didn't complete his sex offender treatment? One reason, he said, was because he would have to go to another facility to do it and he didn't want to give up his visits with his wife. I hope you're both happy. Yeah. Hope you guys are very happy together. In 2012, when he came up for parole the next time, the parole board received a petition with 13,258 signatures to not let David go free. They agreed and denied the petition for parole. In 2014, he was again up for parole, but he did not apply, which I think is strange, probably because he still hadn't completed his treatment. In case he did apply, petitions were circulated and received 15,258 signatures, requesting that he remain locked up. David is still incarcerated at Bowdoin Institution in Alberta, Canada, and he is 63 years old. Can you imagine how exhausting it is for the family to go through this every two years? So, just so you all know, I went and signed the petition because it is due by May 1st of this year for his parole that is coming up. So, we will put the link in the description. Please go sign this petition. It literally took me... Two seconds. I mean, if you agree that David should be in prison, go sign. I mean, if you don't, don't go sign it. But I, I, you all know what will help you sleep at night. Yes. Sign, don't sign. It's up to you. You do. You do what helps you sleep at night. Exactly. But we are going to put the link to this in our episode description. So, you know, I don't actually know how to do that or where that is. But I I hear every other podcast I listen to call it an episode description. Don't worry, Maddie. I I got you. Where it is? I got you, Maddie. Where do you even find the episode description (laughs) on a podcast? I'm serious. (laughs) So we'll also post it on our social media. You can also find it on the Justice for the Johnson Bentley families on Facebook. Yeah, and another huge call out to Heather Ponsano who helped us with the research on this episode. You are amazing. This episode is brought to you by Heather Ponsano. <laughs> I think we should say it like that okay. because I enjoyed that much more. Done. Done. So, yeah, thank you, Heather. We so appreciate you. You're amazing. Thank yeah, you thank to you everybody so who helps us and supports us and listens to us and posts us on their stories. Yep. Go check us out on social media. At Lost in the Woods Podcast of Variations on pretty much every social media. You'll be able to find it. You'll yeah. be fine. And if you haven't signed up for our Patreon, go check that out. We are still going to send you buttons if you sign up. The whole month of April. The whole month of April. They're yeah. really cute. They're cute. And then we have two new Patreons. We have Casey Groomer. Hi, Casey. Welcome to Patreon. Thank you so much. And we also have Carol Vincent. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. You guys are amazing, and we couldn't do it without you. Yeah. So thank you so much, you guys. We really appreciate you. If anyone can get my mother that book. Maddie's going to make you a bookmark. you got a pretty bookmark waiting. 
<laughs> All right. Thanks, you guys. And we will talk to you next week. Bye.